Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by MetLife. At MetLife, we believe in the value of advice, and that's why we're determined to support advisors with a life insurance experience that is sustainable, efficient, and unique. So, when the unexpected happens, we're there to provide care, compassion, support, and expertise for advisors and their clients when they need it most. MetLife. Life inspired by you. Hello and welcome to this part three of our five-part series on the new risk environment for income protection as we settle into the changes from IDII. I'm your host, Fraser Jack, and in this episode, our panel nerds out on the technical side of income protection product profitability, including the five levers that can be used to keep the products sustainable. There are some very interesting points in this episode that may change the way that you think about income protection. So let's dive into the episode and nerd out together. Welcome back to our series. We are talking all things around the new world of disability income and how we're how we're working with advisors or how advisors are working with their clients in this space. Uh, look, let's talk about the fact. Uh, let's make no. No, we won't steer away from the idea that this has been a really difficult time for advisors and especially around the idea of having to compare all the products uh, and look at all the products from a new products point of view and and knowing your products is obviously a big part of that. Um, How have you gone about it, Kathy? How have you gone about comparing all the products that have come out and how are you going to then start looking at uh, what becomes the new normal? I think the the biggest thing is is we've gone from what was mostly apples to apples to what I like to term as the new fruit salad. Okay, <laughs> That's there, a really there's good still way a it. few things that look like apples to apples, but there's a few other, you know, a banana and an orange floating around as well. It's the biggest thing has been firstly getting your head around how each product plays out. Now, you know, there's been a lot of work done. I know there's a spreadsheet kicking around with high level overviews of every single product, um, but it's not just you know, the product, the new product, you need to also understand how the client plays in the old product space and how that compares to the new product and is that best interest. And then, you know, once you've figured out what your potential solution is and if it's a new product, you then need to understand how that product provider wants you to quote on that new product because each system is different. Now, I'm in the situation that I've reviewed a lot of IP products just in the past three months when this new product has been out and I'm only this week doing my first recommendation that a client takes up a new product and I'm I'm not sure if the other two are in the same space or whether they've already, you know, dived headfirst into, into throwing in clients into new products but it's not been an easy space to make sure that you're doing the best thing by the client. 
Yeah, I love I love the analogy of a fruit salad. I, I I love the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, knowledge knowing that a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom of not putting it in a fruit salad. Uh, it kind of feels a bit like that, though, doesn't it? Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, looking at these different types of um, products. Um, I, John, you sort of shake your head at this, but um, it, it we are going to have to get used to that new space of you know moving clients from old products to new products. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think the the pricing pressures on the existing policies as well too, if it hasn't already come, it's coming. We've found in most cases up until now that we've been amending existing policies. Um, So it has been, all right, we're going to go indemnity instead of agreed. We're going to pull you out of level premiums and go to stepped premiums Um, because still from a benefits perspective, we're still talking about superior policies from a from a from a benefits perspective, and you know, it may be the old head sitting still on my shoulders, where it's just around highest claimability, highest claimability. But I just don't think that that's going to change because that's around my value set, um, around you know, just trying to have the certainty and the peace of mind. There's an insurer that's getting a lot of market share at the moment um, because they've got a very similar policy to what was pre um, changes and. Um, the other ones, especially which we'll talk around, you know, the own occupation to any occupation change, I just still can't change a client from an existing scenario to that scenario. And I know I'm going to have to face this soon enough, but I'm yet to. And it just, to be honest with you, I, I appreciate how other advisors are scared or feeling the difficult situation because I'm still to find my head how, um, how to get through this. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting world. Uh, uh, Serena, how have you gone about this, uh, this new world of, comparing all these products? Yeah. Well, I was lucky that in sleepy little Perth, as we joked, was isolated from the rest of the world, um, a group of risk specialists all got together, you know, to talk about it. So we're all practitioners in our own space and we spent um, a couple of days talking about all of those things and sharing. So I, I really found that community to be really helpful. And and as Cathy mentioned, there was a spreadsheet being sent around, which obviously got sent around all of Australia. And then it was a question of going through it. And you had the the BDM procession, um, everyone wanting to come in and explain their exact slant on that. And then really trying to dig through, you know, what does it actually mean in real terms? So asking those questions of of actual scenarios, how is this going to play out? Um, you know, we were laughing to ourselves thinking anyone that wrote IP in that immediacy of that change would want to be incredibly careful because I'm not sure how they would possibly be able to say they knew actually what they were doing. Uh, I mean, it's one thing if it was a completely new um, client and the client had no cover in place. So in that situation, the only thing they can be is better off because all they have available is what is now available. If you had a client that had existing cover in place, it needed an awful lot more work. And, and the goalposts are still moving, you know, and I've, I've commented to, to a lot of clients that, that I would expect this next period to still show some change in, in the income protection offers and that these might stabilise to, to sort of the mid-later end of this year. And, and similar to what John was saying is, is looking at some clients who were under extreme premium pressure to say, okay, what can we do? Because the percentage spend has become disproportionate you know, I, I don't want clients going to work purely pay insurance premiums. You know, it, it needs to have some balance in in their cash flow. So there, there was an awful lot of work put into this over time. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the, and the moving goalpost is, a, is an analogy that I can certainly visualise too when it comes to. Uh, Jeff, what have, you, what have you seen? Obviously, it wasn't just up to the, uh, the advisors to get their heads around a whole lot of new policies on the market. It's, it's up to the insurers as well to work out where they where they all sit. Yeah, and again, the from an income protection point of view, the guidelines that were set down by APRA was our, was our starting point. And everyone had the same starting point. So we looked at the APRA measures, and that's how we built the new product that was issued from the 1st of October, 2021. The Actuaries Institute also came out with a set of, set of guidelines that they said, here's the various things that, you, that insurance companies should possibly consider when designing their product. Um, some companies literally did a cut and paste out of that. Other companies took a view somewhere between the APRA guidelines and the um, Institute of Actuaries guidelines. So the APRA guidelines were mandatory. The Institute of Actuaries guidelines were suggestions. And what we then had to do, and again, this is something that we're looking at as well, is that we know for a fact that there's going to be existing benefits, features, and options that clients are still going to value. So Serena and John and Kathy have all mentioned this. So things such as the old specified injury benefits, the trauma benefits, the agreed value benefits, um, we know that they are valued by existing policyholders. So the question is, what's the appropriate price for those benefits? And then the next thing is that when it comes to affordability for the new product, what does that look like? So when we actually sat down and looked at this, this was that, that was a fairly big thing. So our existing policy versus our old policy, and then look at the various areas that we need to be uh, um, mindful of. And the, there were basically what I took a look at, there was basically three, er- four, five areas that you need to look at. So one was the capability clause was the, the one that we now have. The capability clause is effectively a back to the future situation. So those of you who've been in the industry long enough will remember that approximately a decade ago, almost every single life insurance policy in Australia had a capability clause. Um, and what it effectively stated was that if you have the ability to work and there's work available in your normal occupation or usual occupation, then you have a responsibility to return to that role in the capacity that you can. Otherwise, we have the right to reduce your benefit. And again, there were- this is a really interesting part. I mean, I'm just, I just want to dive into this, um, which is the, the fact of somebody, if they can go back to work, right? And, and it's all very nice to say, oh, it's a, it's a, it's, we can get rid of that clause and it was a, it's good for the client if it's not there. But the fact is, if they can't go back to work, then surely they should be, right? Well, then again, and when I talk to the various, when I talk to our claims people and I was at MetLife and also talk to claims people around the industry, the first thing we want to do is, and again, the first thing that most claims people, they're incredibly caring, and I found this across the industry, is the first thing they want to do is, one, return the person to health. Second thing is return them to wellness, and then finally return them to work. This is so. Just on this before we go, before yeah. we move on, over, um, that if if then if 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 they can go back to work and they're not going back to work, then then theoretically all of our other clients have got to pay for that, right? Absolutely correct, and that's and that was a contributing factor to some of the claims um, experience that was happening across the industry. Is that there were some clients. Now again, the majority of clients. Are again what we found across the industry is the, st- the statistics that we've seen from KPMG, the Institute of Actuaries, and APRA basically states that 85% of all clients 
are pay and close within six months. So from the time they lodge their claim to the time they're back at work, six months. Yep. And and so what about the rest of our panel, John, uh, uh, Serena and Kathy? Do, does, is, there, is there any problem with a capability clause then in, in your thoughts? I think it justifies – I had a conversation with a client this week. He's like, well, why is my premium gone up? And we started discussing some of these changes and I said one of the problems is is that it was more beneficial for some clients – to stay on claim because they had agreed value definitions. They were getting more in their pocket staying at home than they were by going to work. And because of those people, and it's, you know, I don't know what the numbers are on that, um, but it's because of those people that unfortunately everyone else has to support that by paying higher premiums. So it's a difficult conversation to have when, you know, it's a client asking why their premiums are going up. Yes. Serena? I find um, the advisor has an amazing opportunity to help guide the mindset of the claimant and the claimant's family. And so I try really hard to work with the clients around finding their new normal you know, particularly if, you know, and the claims that that I've had, they, they haven't been pay and close in six months. You know, some of these people are really serious cancer claims and the client at times feels guilty that they're malingering and they're trying to return to work too early, trying to fit treatment in between meetings. And I say, guys, you, you're actually not the problem here. Um, I need you to get well um, and I really admire your, your efforts. Um, but, but I try to speak with clients around a, a reasonable duration of claim and, and also the, the overall benefits to their life of being back at work. You know, I mean, at times we have this view that, oh, work, work is awesome and it's how our society functions and it's how we interact. You know, the first question people ask you is, oh, so, Fraser, what do you do? And if you say, oh, well, I sit on the couch all day doing nothing, that that might get a laugh once or twice, but after a while people are going to go, oh, you're not doing much. So so I think that the, the conversation and the attitudes around these things can be influenced and improved for the better so that the genuine people who who truly need to be on claim for a significant period of time are, are doing so without any any ill feeling. So yep. I think, and, and Jeff's right, it is a last resort. You know, the, the claims managers that I've worked with, they're, they're amazing and caring and kind. Yep. John, what are your thoughts on the capability clause? I, I see not really an issue with it. As long as it's ticked off by a medical professional that's independent, all, you know, um, I'm pretty cool with that. I think the ones that I've found that, you know, there's there's certain people that try and milk the system, let's be honest. Um, and, yeah, I don't think anyone wants that. I think we want it there to be there if, if they need it. Um, and if they don't need it, well, you know, try and get back to it, try and get back to work. And, you know, I think insurance companies do a stellar job in trying to get clients um back into the workforce, which is obviously a win-win for everyone. Well, it should be. I've been on the claim myself um, personally. I was quite sinister, had spinal surgery and whatnot, and the insurance company was awesome with me when I was a claimant, you know, and, you know, they took the time, said, you know, do what you need to do. But, you know, my mindset was getting back to it. I love what I do, doing what I need to do. And and to be honest with with you, they were probably going to give me more time than I actually needed um, to get back into it. So you know, being on the reciprocate uh, on the recipient end of this, I don't see I don't see an issue with it. Yeah, Jeff, uh, if if that capability clause was in there, and then what, why did it find its way out of policies? 
that's a great story. Quite simply, there was a particular insurance company about 10 to 15 years ago that when they updated their PDS, they, f- they forgot to put the capability clause in. They panicked. But then when it went to the research houses, the research houses actually gave them additional research points for not having the capability clause in. They saw that as competitive marketing advantage and ratings house advantage. And after the one did it, then many other companies followed suit shortly thereafter. So I think that from a particular mistake that was made early on, everybody followed um, and, and removed it. I see it as being a necessary part of the risk management process. And again, it's only used in extraordinary circumstances. <laughs> yep. I think that is an interesting story. Now, Jeff, you mentioned that we, we talked about the five different levers and with capability clauses one. What, what, what's the next one? The, the next one I look at is rehabilitation and retraining. The very simple thing that we've seen is that between 80 to 85% of all claimants are paying close within the first six months. So in other words, they lodge their claim, they go on claim, they get paid, and within six months, they're back at work and payments closed. And so that the 85%, and then we also know is that not approximately industry information says approximately 92% returns to full-time gainful employment within two years. So what we found is that the re- rehabilitation and return to work is an essential part of this. And this is one of the things that APRA mentioned as well. From a MetLife perspective, we see three components. So one is before they ever get to claim, prevention is probably a big part of this. So MetLife has the MetLife 360 health program, which includes Teladoc, which allows customers to get access across preventative health care, such as nutrition, mental health, GP referrals, and specialists with no at no extra cost to the client, and they don't have to be on claim. So we believe at MetLife that prevention is better than cure. And we also was we also have discovered from the research that's been done previously is that if a person's engaging in these programs before they ever go on claim, the duration of their claim and the severity of their claim is normally reduced as well. So that's step one. Step two is rehabilitation or retraining. So in other words, assisting the client to return to health, return to wellness, and then finally return to work through rehabilitation, retraining, and MetLife has what's called the Nourish program that also helps them through that as well. So again, prevention is the first part. The second part is rehabilitation retraining. And then we talked about the capability clause. So for me, that rehab and retraining process and the prevention becomes a necessary part of this entire process. So in other words, the insurance companies don't just pay an amount to the client, but they're a partner with the client as part of their entire health, rehabilitation, retraining, return to work, return to wellness program. Yeah, it certainly makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? From a uh, not just the it's like as you said, the health and wellness, the, the not just the physical, but the mental side of of dealing with a claim. And um, you know, I think uh, all the advisors here on the on the call have have dealt with many claims, and it's it's been one of those scenarios that obviously everyone's different, but the the client's mindset. Serena, what do you think? The client's mindset is one of the most important parts of that. Yeah, I think it is, and I I also feel that's why it's so important for the client at the earliest point in the claim to feel listened to, the sooner you can get things approved and sorted and they know that you have their back, they're not coming from the back foot. Um, You know, I think that people obviously buy insurance and and they at the back of their mind kind of think, gosh, 
is it actually going to work on the day that I need it? And so when they lodge their claim, they're almost expecting a fight or to be knocked back. And so we just try to make sure that as soon as it can, we're done. And and also making sure that you're meeting people where they're at and making sure that you're you're being there as as the in between to help the insurer um, and explain that at times you know there's an audit process. People can't release hundreds of thousands of dollars if there is missing data. And sometimes you need to go in and find where's the data missing because why can't why can't this claim be paid? And and clients are typically not in the headspace to be able to manage that. So so I feel that the advisor and their team have huge role in being able to keep the mindset up and and naturally of course being realistic yeah and 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 understanding that like you said you know that that missing data it is a, it is a language isn't it that uh, sometimes it's a bit of translation but going in and finding and understanding where to look for that missing data and just be able to bring it all up bring it all out and bring it out front so that um, the claim can be paid, uh, which is what a lot of the um, – all, well, all the companies are really there to do to pay those claims. Jeff, now you mentioned the – well, obviously the, the, um, that being a big part of rehab and returning to work and the length of claims being a big part of the process. The one of the other things I wanted to get into is one of the other levers I wanted to get into when it comes to prof, you know, you know, working out if a, if a product is going to be sustainable and, 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 and profitable in the long term, therefore sustainable for the client, is that uh, own occupation and any occupation definition. And John, obviously, you've mentioned this a fair few times as well. How big a part is that of the process? Um, we see that MetLife saw that as a key lever. Now, the thing that we looked at with this is that the own occupation versus any occupation, the guidelines that some companies have gone by is that where a customer has been on claim for a period of time, and it's usually often two years, then they'll change from an own occupation or a, their usual occupation over to an any occupation based on education, training, or experience. MetLife has intentionally chose not to go down that path. So with the policy that we launched on the 1st of October, 2021, um, we go for an own occupation for the duration of the policy. And the reason for that was that APRA asked the various insurance companies to be able to manage long-term risk. Certain companies have chosen to manage the long-term risk by going from an ONOC to an ENEOC after two years. MetLife has chosen a different path. So what we've chosen to do instead of going down that situation is by saying we can manage risk in three, in three other ways. So one is prevention. So in other words, give people access to our 360 health and teledoc and the allied health services, such as nutrition, nutrition, um, mental health, GP, and specialists before they ever go on claim. The second way we manage that risk is through rehabilitation and retraining and our nourish program. So basically getting them back to wellness, getting them back to health, and finally getting them back to work. And then the third way to manage that long-term risk was, as we discussed before, through the capability clause. So for us, that was how we chose to manage that long-term risk. Other companies chose to manage the long-term risk by going to an any occupation definition. Again, it's making sure that from a MetLife perspective, we looked at this and said, we want to provide the client with certainty so they can focus on the important things, return to health, return to wellness, then finally return to work without the goalposts being changed after two years. Yeah, it's a, certainly an interesting uh, part of the conversation around uh, any and own occupation. Um, now, I, 
I wanted to also, uh, like, as, you, as you mentioned before, of course, there's plenty of other levers involved with regard to uh, with with regard to assessing the claim before you get to that uh, any known occupation as well. One of the things that is in that in that mix, one of those other levers, of course, is the percent that we haven't covered yet is the percentage of the claim paid and 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 the varying percentages of claims. Um, yeah. So, that, and I think this is there's there's two steps to this. So one is what percentage of the person's income gets replaced, and the APRA guidelines say that in the first six months. So, so the APRA measures state that in the first six months you can replace up to ninety percent of the person's income. Then, after, if the claim goes on for longer than six months, then it's a maximum of seventy percent. So, again, the question then becomes is that there are certain if it goes on for longer than a period of time, do you then reduce that um, percentage to something less than 70%? So from a MetLife perspective, we looked at this and said, does this manage the risk of the claim any better by doing this? And again, we looked at this and said, no. There are some organizations, some life insurance companies who have said, if you've been on claim for longer than two years, we'll reduce the, the replacement ratio from a 70% to something less. So 60% or something else. Again, we talked about what's the best way to manage that risk. And we looked at it from those other three perspectives. Prevention, rehabilitation, retraining, and capability clause was a better way for us. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is what we call income tiering. So they say that we'll cover 70% for the first 200,000. But then from 200,000 to 300,000, we're only going to cover 60%. Then from 300,000 to 400,000, it's only 50%. And once you get above that amount, then we start reducing the percentage rather than a straight 70% replacement ratio. So again, I have to speak from the company I work for. We do a straight 70% up to your maximum of uh, $30,000 per month. And that's what we do. With some of the other companies, once you get above $200,000 or $250,000 of income, your replacement ratio is something less than 70%. So the question then becomes is that when you sit down with your client, and you say to your client, yes, it's no longer 75%, it's actually 70%. Well, it's 70% if you're earning less than 200000 If you're earning more than 200000 well, depending upon which company we go to, it's going to be less. So as Kathy said before, um, the differences between products, even with regards to income tiering, also is quite significant. Yeah, exactly right. And, and again, something else they have to throw into the mix when we're looking at our, uh, our philosophies on uh, how we're going to make sure the client's covered, John? Jeff, one of the ones that actually interests me in regards to any own occupation, and there's obviously uh, a lot of experienced people even on here and probably listening to the podcast, and then there's obviously some people that are just getting into the risk space, which we need to appreciate as well. Now, when we're talking about the difference between any and own occupation, I like using myself as an example. So I've been in the industry for quite a while, uh, nearly two decades. Um, but a part of that process, so I had a stint as a courier driver and I had a stint as a di- dishwasher, okay, washing dishes at the local restaurant. So let's say I couldn't be a financial advisor and I could possibly wash dishes or be a courier driver under an own ocu- or in any occupation, yeah, what's the likelihood of me being able to continue to be paid? And, that, and that's an excellent question, John. And again, I, the only thing I can do is go back to what I've seen with case law. So with case law, what they say is based on your education, your training, and your experience. So the question that they'd ask is, how long have you been a financial planner for? And you'll say, 
well, I won't, I won't want to give away your age, so we'll say, we'll say a couple of years. They, they'll, they'll then ask, what type of training or education did it require for you to become a financial planner? And again, under the phase year requirements and the new ASIC requirements, um, there is at least eight units you have to do, sometimes more, but effectively it's an AQF7 or equivalent, so bachelor's degree or equivalent. Then there's a national exam and all the rest of it. So what they do is they, when they look at education, training, and experience, they look at all of this stuff. And based on previous case law, they would say to get to a similar level of education, training, and experience that you currently have as a financial advisor, what's another equivalent role that you could do with minimal retraining? And so that's what we see from the case law. Now, again, we'll see how this plays out at claim time, but that's what they normally state. So if, again, I was... I used to work in a in a convenience store, so similar to a Seven Eleven. I used to work in a um, in a in a supermarket, similar to a Coles or a Woolies when I was a kid growing up. What type of education, training, experience does it require for both those jobs? Well, I need to be able to talk to customers, and I need to be able to stand up and stock shelves. So, based on my current training, education, experience, um, that would not be deemed to be a suitable role based on my current education, training, experience. That's not significant, but the question then becomes, is there a similar role? And the similar roles are the ones that provide the ambiguity. And and I think this becomes the hardest part of how we play this new space, you know, because we've already said, you know, different um, income percentage ratios that change over time. And then we throw in, you know, definitions that change over time. You know, I spoke earlier about I've just recommended my first one and just reminding myself that I need to go back and check that I have, you know, qualified all of these things in my reasoning because it becomes quite difficult to make sure that if we are moving these clients from previous policies, you know, John talked about didn't want to get a client away from an own occupation. But if the client's coming back to you and saying, hey, look, the premiums, you know, I can't keep paying these, then at what point is the trade-off? that they have to look at an any suited occupation after a two-year time period like and getting the client to understand that if they are on that long-term claim, you know, what what they have to deal with, you know, does that mean, hey, look, you're going to have a little bit extra in your trauma cover because we want to make sure that if you do go long-term, you've got a bigger base of money to start with, you know, like, where do we trade off with a client? Where do we bring our expertise in and say, hey, look, you haven't considered trauma. I'm recommending you trauma because a long-term claim, I want to make sure you're topping up um, your income if you have one of those those conditions. Like there's so much going on in this space and educating the client to understand all of those things is 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 really difficult when it's so technical that there's so many of us that are still struggling to understand it. Or alternative, Kathy, you just look for those policies that do have um, long-term own occupation definitions. Good plug there, Jeff. Well done. <laughs> Serena? Yeah. A, a flow-on consequence that I think is going to come from all of these changes, and it circles back to some things that John's been mentioning throughout, which is we do this to give clients certainty um, you know, all of the work that we're trying to do is to, to make things as certain as possible. And, and I'm seeing and hearing advisors thinking, okay, so if we have less certainty around the income and we all accept that income is pivotal 
to the to the strategy and to all clients' households is then people increasing the levels of cover in TPD and trauma um, and and then the flow on impact. So I'm I'm kind of earmarking that I think TPD and trauma are the next uh, cabs on the rank to be reworked because I would expect there to be higher sums insured and then potentially higher claims and, and you're also potentially going to get this two-tier system where you might be increasing an old TPD policy which has a very different definition to a current IP policy which has other definitions and particularly if we're looking across different companies or across different reinsurers, it's not going to be a simple outcome. Yep. John? And this is the other issue you've got is that TPD also have limits. So when we're talking about getting in there and let's say providing protection at an early age and we've got to extrapolate the need for a client, do the need and then we sit there and we go, hmm, is there any providers who are going to allow for $4.8 million worth of income replacement? And it's like, uh, yeah, we're going to struggle there. And so then you have to start trading off on on, on, on those things. So, yeah, Serena's definitely right. This is another area and it just, I don't, without kind of trying to, uh, there's a lot of research that's gone into this, but, you know, there's just so many kind of flow-on effects from these government changes. It just, you start to obviously question, have these all been thought out? And yeah, very, very interesting. I think the certainty um, is, is the key factor when you're talking about these any own occupations. I think the percentages are an issue, but I think they're more of an issue as well too about what that means to the lump sum covers. Yeah, what does that mean? And those increases that need to happen there, not to say that they don't affect the income protection, they do, but it's just that indirect or that direct correlation with the lump sum covers. Yeah, definitely. It all works together. And of course, um, behind this episode and really behind this, the, the, the idea of understanding how technically uh, these products work behind this behind the scenes um, is the idea of sustainability and making sure that these products are going to be there and are going to be around for the time uh, in the future when those clients need them most. So uh, thank you very much, everybody in the panel, for joining us in this particular episode. We really appreciate your, your input. Uh, we look forward to jumping in and ch- chatting to you in the next episode. While care has been taken in preparing this material, MetLife Insurance Limited does not warrant or represent that the information, opinions or conclusions contained in this presentation are accurate. The information provided is general information only and is current at the time of production. To the extent permitted by law, MetLife does not accept any responsibility or liability arising from your use of this information. The information about MetLife Life Insurance is general only and does not take into account your personal situation, needs or objectives. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice and should not be relied upon as such. MetLife recommends that you obtain independent and specific advice from appropriate professionals before implementing a financial strategy, including reading any relevant product disclosure statements and terms and conditions. Before deciding whether to acquire or continue to hold any of our products, please read the PDS available at metlife.com.au. And for the class of consumers who the products are likely to be suitable for and any conditions around how the product can be distributed, please read the target market determinations for the products available at metlife.com.au as prepared by MetLife and Equity Trustees Super Annuation Limited. Life insurance products are issued by MetLife Insurance Limited, ABN 75004274882, AFSL 238096, and Equity Trustee Superannuation Limited, ABN 50055641757, AFSL 229757.